0: Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And for those of you that uh, haven't been here for all of these messages, and some of you were here for the very first part in the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15, this has been a a long and ongoing process. We're in uh, session number 5. We have one more to go to finish up chapter 15. We will move into 16 uh, in just a couple of weeks. But throughout this book of the Bible, Paul is teaching about the Corinthians' unbelief in a bodily resurrection of the dead. That is, his primary goal is dealing with this issue. Even though the Corinthian church believed in the resurrection of Christ... They were not yet willing to accept the reality of their own bodily resurrection in the future. And so in dealing with this issue in a very, very brief review, Paul has emphasized the centrality of the gospel message in verses one through nine. He's talked about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, how we come to know him. In the second part of this, he looked we looked at the certainty of the resurrection in verses twelve through through nineteen and what the Corinthians believed is that Jesus was raised, but they themselves would not. And Paul goes on to talk about the disastrous theological consequence that would be the result if in fact there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. And so Paul would say if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ was not raised. The gospel message is meaningless. Our faith is meaningless. The apostles are false witnesses. We are still in our sin and on and on and go on and on. He goes to identify the consequences if in fact there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. In verses 20 through 28 Paul states very clearly that there that Christ has been raised from the dead. He says that he is the first fruit of a full and complete harvest that is going to come in the future that through his resurrection he provides life to believers through that resurrection. He overcomes death through His resurrection and He subdues all things because He is the resurrected One. The The subjection of all things includes all powers, all rulers, and all the enemies of God. And the chief enemy of God was instituted at the fall of man, and that is death. The chief enemy of God is death, and Jesus through His death, burial, and resurrection has overcome God's chief enemy. Thirdly, we looked at the affirmations of this bodily resurrection in verses 29-34. through And in this section, Paul provides proof that there is a resurrection from the dead. And the first thing he points out is their particular practice. Now, a very complicated section here, and apparently they were performing vicarious baptism for the dead in hopes that it would benefit the dead in some form or fashion and as a result of this Paul would in effect say, you say there is no bodily resurrection, so why then are you practicing a baptism in an effort to help dead people if in fact there is no resurrection from the dead? So it makes no sense that they would baptize for the dead if in fact there was not resurrection for the dead. So Paul goes on to talk about the affirmation of this bodily resurrection in the sacrificial service that he has exemplified as well as the other apostles and other committed Christians who have been willing to suffer great bodily harm, even facing the reality of death. Why would they do that if they were not assured of a future bodily resurrection? Paul goes on in the second letter to the Corinthians to outline all the ways that he has suffered. The the floggings, the shipwreck, the hunger, the imprisonments, etc., etc., Paul says, why would I do that if I was not certain of a bodily resurrection? The last affirmation that Paul points out is faithful living. The biblical command to be holy as He is holy... The biblical command to grow in our sanctification, to be conformed to His image, is proof that one day we will all stand before God, we will give an account of our life, and if that were not to be true, then Christians and others could simply live their lives however they desired, with no consequence and no accountability at the end of their life. Without the prospect of a bodily resurrection and the accountability it brings, there is no incentive to live faithfully now, and instead we will do what Paul condemns the Corinthian for doing, that is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. If you believe that death is the end, then that is how you're going to live your life. But if you live your life with the understanding that there is a day of accountability, then you will not eat, drink, and be merry, because you will die, you will you will not do that because you know you're going to stand accountable to God for the life that you have lived. Now that's four weeks worth of preaching in three and a half minutes, and that's not even a Reader's Digest version. That's barely an overview, because I've got to get into this today that we're going to look at. Number three, and our ongoing and growing outline, is the subject of our resurrected bodies. So continuing with the central issue of their unbelief in a physical, bodily resurrection, Paul continues their, his correction of their wrong belief. We're going to read verses 35 all the way through 49, and then we're going to expand upon that. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of the beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish." There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised in, excuse me, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Oh, the last adam became a life-giving spirit however the spiritual is not the, is not first but the natural then the spiritual the first man is from the earth earthy the second man is from heaven as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, as I read, as I read through this, it occurs to me that there are many, many people who come to church and they want to be encouraged and they want to be placated in some form or fashion. But we, we preach through the Bible and we start at verse 1 of chapter 1 and we go through the end of whatever the end chapter is. And there's a lot of stuff in between that is very difficult to identify. And there's a lot of stuff that we go, I don't get any of that at all. What's that all about? And as some commentators have said, in my study of First Corinthians, I would really prefer to skip over this entirely. But you can't do that. Right? You can't do that to be faithful to the inerrant, infallible, perfect, eternal Word of God. So we're we're going to sift through all of this, and we're going to look at what Paul has said as it relates to the certainty of a bodily resurrection as it applies to our resurrected bodies, and hopefully you'll come out of that saying, man, God has done a great thing for me. So as we look at our resurrected bodies, the first thing we're going to look at are the questions. Now the questions that are that are expressed here, there's two of them. They're found in verse 35. And here's what Paul says. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? So Paul anticipates that his hearers are going to have these questions. But actually it goes further than that. Paul expects objections to what it is he's about to say. And this becomes more obvious when you read the first two words in verse 36, you fool. Now, Paul would not say that to the honest inquiry. He would say that to those that he is expecting to object to his explanation of this central issue of resurrection theology and the certainty of a bodily resurrection of believers in the future. So, Paul says you fool. So he isn't expecting an honest inquiry, but instead a stubborn rejection. So the first question is, how are the dead raised? And that's more related to the possibility of, not so much the method of. So their objection, their question is, exactly how is God going to take these bodies that have decayed or have been burned in fire or have been lost at sea? How is God... How is it possible God is going to do that? Not so much of... And what way is God going to do that? Is He going to speak? Is He going to clap His hands? Is He going to shout? Is He going to send something? Why? That's not the question. It is, how is it possible that the dead are raised? That's at the heart of the objection that the Corinthian Christian has. The second question, with what kind of bodies do they come, is an extension of the first question. If it is possible that the dead are raised, what kind of bodies will they have? And so Paul is going to deal with this issue throughout the remainder of the rest of chapter 15. So secondly, we're going to look not only at the questions that Paul is anticipating, but the illustrations that Paul will give to explain the certainty of the resurrection and our resurrected body. So he's going to give two illustrations that are going to explain this to the church at Corinth. Letter A, he's going to use the illustration of the seed. Verse 36b, the second part of verse 36. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now this illustration is an important one. And Paul draws upon their agricultural knowledge to make it. Now, if you're not agriculturally informed as most of us are not, it becomes a little bit more difficult to understand exactly what Paul is saying. If you were a physicist, and Paul is speak, speaking physicist language, you go, oh yeah, I understand that. If you were an engineer, and Paul was speaking engineering language, you would say, oh yeah, I understand that. He's speaking agricultural language, and they understand exactly what that means, but he's going to continue to explain that. So here's how it goes. When you want to grow a crop, you first put a seed, seed into the ground. The seed that is planted actually dies and decomposes in order for a plant to grow. The seed must cease to exist in its original form as a seed before it can come to life in its final form as a plant. So, for example, at the end of the growing season... When you dig up your garden and take out the remnants, you don't find any seeds in the ground, do you? The seed you planted is no longer there. What happened to it? It decomposed and it died and in its place is the stalk of whatever it was you planted. Verse 37, And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat, or of something else. Paul uses the term body here, and by that he means the final product of what the seed becomes. So, for example, if you want to grow tomatoes, you don't take a tomato and bury it in the ground. If you want to grow some corn, you don't take an ear of corn and bury it in the ground. If you want to grow lettuce, you don't take a head of lettuce and bury it in the ground, do you? Not why? Because nothing will grow. That is the body or the form of what that seed is going to become. So there is a difference between the original form and the final form, the seed and the plant that it produces. So the usage of the term body now takes prominence in the illustrations that Paul is going to give and this starts in verse 38. But God gives it a body just as He wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now a body should not be understood as flesh and blood but body is to be understood as a kind or a type, God gives this seed planted into the ground a body or a final form just as He planned. So, for example, some seeds produce grain, some seeds produce vegetables, some fruit, some herbs, some trees, just as God planned. Each seed will produce in like kind Of what was sown. Now, follow along. Corn will not produce a tomato. A tomato will not produce an orange. An orange will not produce an herb. The seed will produce a form just as God designed, and that form is what Paul is identifying as its body. So he continues to use body as an illustration to make his point. He emphasizes the differences within the types of bodies. Each of which are designed by God and each of which show the vast difference in God's creation and His ability to create a different resurrected physical body. So here's the issue, or the idea rather. You take a seed, you put it in the ground, and several weeks or a few months later, something totally different from the seed sprouts from the ground. It is a form or type exactly as God has planned. And Paul is using that as an illustration to explain what happens in our earthly physical bodies one day in the future When our bodies are resurrected to a type and a form that God has designed and God has planned. So he's going to continue to flesh out these illustrations. So the second illustration that we're going to see here are the bodies. Now Paul will use two different types of bodies to illustrate the transformative process that takes place from seed to crop And he's going to use this first with earthly biological bodies, those with flesh and blood. Now we're going to look at verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. One thing all mankind has in common is we have skin and bones, we have blood blood vessels and organs, and all of these things are consistent within the type or the form of mankind. But there is a vast difference in these biological bodies between man and beasts and birds and fish. Those differences are obvious to the natural eye even to the limited understanding of the ancient world. There was something consistent about the flesh of mankind. There's something consistent about the beasts of the field, the meat that they produce, the skin that can be used for leather, or perhaps the milk that they produce to provide nutrition to people. There's birds. They all have feathers. They all have hollow bones. They all have some kind of a beak and some kind of a towel. and The fish all have some kind of a scale. They all live under the water. There's a Consistency within the distinctions of the kinds and they are exactly as God has created them. That is obvious to the natural eye. Something I read in my study which is absolutely phenomenal and Ken will probably really, really like this. I don't know if the rest of you will. But Ken's that kind of a guy. I pull these things out for Ken. It keeps him interested. Gives you something to think about through the rest of the message. Not really. I'm just kidding. Here it is. There are some 600 octodecillion different combinations of amino acids. An octodecillion is 10 to the 108th power or 1 followed by 108 zeros. Can you imagine such a number? Amino acids are the building blocks of all of life. Not only does each type of plant and animal life have a distinct pattern of amino acids, but each individual plant, animal, and human human being has its own unique grouping of them. No two flowers, snowflakes, seeds, blades of grass, or human beings... Even identical twins, right John and Lorenda, are exactly alike. None. Yet each is completely identified with its own species or kind. Now, this is really for modern man to think about the miraculous creative power of God. To think that there are 108, or excuse me, 10 to the 108th power, different combinations of amino acids that make not only distinctions of types, but unique distinctions within each type. Our DNA. Nobody in here has the exact same DNA makeup. That is how individually we are made. Our, our thumbprints are totally different, even though we are of the same kind and type of biological being. It's phenomenal to think about what it is God has done. Now, that's a minor diversion, but it's used to identify the specificity in the type that God has created and the miraculous nature of His ability to create something differences within a single type or kind this is the first type of body that paul is drawing attention to the biological type and the incredible differences or distinction within that within those types now the second distinction that God makes here are the heavenly bodies. We see this in verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. So Paul does two things here in this example or this part of the illustration. He makes the distinction of earthly and heavenly and he also introduces the term glory. Now, glory reflects the nature of, or the manifestation of, each form or each type of body. Earthly is different from heavenly, and within earthly there are distinct differences, humans, beasts of the field, Birds of the air, fish of the sea, just as there are within the heavenly bodies. So there is a type of heavenly body, but there are differences and distinction within that singular type. And this is what he goes on to explain in verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars, excuse me, for stars differ from star in glory. So remember, The word glory is the form or the manifestation of. So Paul references the sun, the moon, and the stars, each of which have differences in their nature, in their manifestation, and their form. So there is only one planet in our solar system that is like the sun, but it's a part of the heavenly bodies that are out there. Even stars differ in their form and nature. No two stars are exactly alike it is said that with our naked eye on a on a uh, clear and somewhat dark evening we can go out and we can see between 5000 and 10000 stars and to us they all look the same but if you begin to look at these through a telescope you'll see differences in size you'll see differences in the intensity of the light you'll see differences in the color that that uh that is emitted the the difference of the color of light that is being emitted by the star and so just as there are differences within biological bodies and heavenly bodies here's Paul's point don't lose it so also there will be differences in our earthly and in our resurrected bodies. Paul has said all of that to emphasize the point that there is a difference between our earthly bodies and our resurrected bodies. Now, Paul is going to now make application of the illustrations that he has given. This begins in verse 42a. So also is the resurrection of the dead. What I have said about the distinction of form in these bodies, the differences that exist, the transformative power of God, just as all of that is so, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Paul has made his analogy or his illustration and now he is making his primary point clear. Just as there are different kinds of flesh... And just as there are different kinds of heavenly bodies, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. A difference between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So remember, in most Greek thought of this day, the physical body was thought to be evil. It was something that you wanted to rid yourself from. You would not want to possess this physical body in the afterlife or in the spiritual life because that is just an abomination to the Greek mind. Now, I'll ask you this. Would you want to take your disabled body into the afterlife? Would you want to take your deformed body into the afterlife? Would you want to take your weary tired, underperforming body into the afterlife? Heck no! That's not at all what we would want. And that, in a sense, is what Paul is saying. And this is the lack of accuracy that the Greek has and what they expect their resurrected body to be like. So if I'm going to take this body that I currently inhabit into the afterlife, no thanks, I don't want any part of that, I can't believe that is what is actually going to take place. So Paul picks up on this physical body ideology that the Greek mind has and he shows the vast transformation that is going to take place in... Our resurrected bodies. He does so using four contrasts between our earthly body and our resurrected bodies, each of which highlight the transformation that is to come. And this is where you really have to say, this is really good, what God is going to do for me. So, as we look at the application, there is letter A, a contrast of permanency. Second part of verse 42. Verse 42, It is sown a perishable body, our earthly body. It is raised an imperishable body. Just as that seed goes into the ground and it decays and dies, so are our earthly bodies. They are going to decay and die. And just as out of that dying seed springs forth a type or kind of plant that is totally transformed from the seed, so are you and I in our resurrected bodies. It is sown a perishable body, one that will decay and die. It is raised an imperishable body, one that cannot decay, and one that cannot die. Now that's pretty good news, isn't it? Now, the older you are, I think the more you appreciate that, the more difficulty you have in your physical body, the more you're going to appreciate that. And I don't think we have any idea of what a perfect physical body can actually be like. Now, these young guys over here, the epitome of health, they probably feel like they're indestructible. I can go do whatever I want. Nobody can stop me. I'm strong. Right? And so, there's a limit to your strength. And if you don't believe me, just go right out in front of a car. good could jump off a real high cliff. You'll find out real quick that you do have actual limit, limitations and your body is perishable. All earthly bodies will deteriorate and die. Psalm 103, verses 14-16. 4, for He Himself, God, knows our frame. He is mindful that we are what? But dust. As for man, his days are like grass... As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the, when the wind has passed over it, it is no more, in its place acknowledges it no longer. From the moment we are born, the process of death has begun. It's just the way it is. Letter B, a contrast of potential. First part of verse 43, it, the earthly body is sown in dishonor, meaning that we have been born into sin, a sinful nature, destined to die spiritually, but it is raised in glory. At the fall of man, man's potential for pleasing and serving God was radically affected. If you go back and read Genesis 3, and you read about the curse that God has given to mankind, and just continue to read, read a few more chapters, it isn't long before Adam and Eve have babies, and they have two kids, one named Cain and one named Abel, and one kills the other. In just a couple of chapters, in just a few short years, Man's capability for pleasing and serving God has been radically affected by sin. Our minds and our spirit are hostile towards God. We are unwilling to yield to His ways and instead want to be our own boss and do our own thing. And we don't want to answer to anybody. Even in our new state of salvation, we still struggle greatly... To honor Him and to please Him. Why? Because of the effect of sin. There is an incredible decrease in our potential to serve God, honor God, please God because of the effect of sin. But that imperfect, that which was sown in dishonor, one day will be raised in glory. You can look at the little seed you plant in your garden and in just a few months it produces this brilliant red, juicy, ripe tomato that just makes your mouth water or an ear of corn or a peach or something else and it is absolutely tra- transformed into some state of greater form or kind then we can even begin to imagine and that is exactly what is going to happen when we are raised in glory. Throughout all of eternity, our new immortal bodies will also be honorable bodies perfected for pleasing, praising, and enjoying our Creator who made us. Now that's good news because we're no longer bound by the effect or the presence of sin. We've been set free to love him and serve him fully without any presence of sin. Let her see. There is a contrast of power. We see this expressed in 43b. It, our earthly body is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We are weak not only in physical strength and endurance, but also in resistance to disease, and harm. No matter how healthy of a lifestyle we live, no matter how much we exercise, no matter how healthy our diet is, we are still prone and suspect to illness, disease, and injury to our bodies. And if that is not enough, we often find ourselves incapable of doing in this earthly body all that God has designed, all that God has purposed for us, And it's so because of our struggle with sin. It's so because of our struggle in rebelling against what God wants and instead emphasizing what I want to do. We are not told what being raised in power will entail, but it will be immeasurably better compared to what we now possess. We will no longer say the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Think about that. Think about all that we could accomplish for God if there was no frailty in our bodies, if there was no weakness or frailty in our spirit if we were just perfectly able to live a life of honor and glory, pleasing to the Lord, what is it that we would be able to do for the kingdom of God? There's an incredible contrast of power that is going to be ours in our resurrected state. Letter D. There is a contrast of presence. We see this in verse 44a. It, the earthly body, is sown a natural body It is raised a spiritual body. And so here is where Paul makes the distinction between what they expect in a resurrected body and what actually will be. The physical body is suited for and limited to the physical world. Even with the imperfections and limitations caused by the fall, our present bodies are wonderfully made for life on this earth and they are marvelously suited for living in this world, our spiritual bodies not so much, and our earthly bodies not so much in the spiritual realm. There is a contrast of presence. There is a realm that our earthly body is only suited to. To living in, and the same is true of our spiritual body. The new body of the believer will be raised a spiritual body. Our spirits now reside in earthly bodies, but one day they will reside in spiritual bodies, and in every way we will be spiritual beings. In both spirit and body, we we will be perfectly suited for heavenly living. Now, At the end of all of what Paul has just said, he makes in my mind a very clear declaration. Verse 44b. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul's declaration is this. Our natural body affirms... That there is a spiritual body to come. Paul has made his point very clear. To reject what he has explained is a rejection of a spiritual reality, which the Corinthian could never, ever, ever do. Now, if you think back to our discussion on spiritual gifts and primarily the gift of tongues and the gifts that the Corinthians thought made them the elite of the spiritual elite, Paul has gone on to say that isn't what makes you spiritual at all. Paul is affirming that reality here. It is in our resurrected bodies that we will completely and fully be a spiritual being. The physical world was evil. The spiritual world was good. The physical world was to be freed from. The spiritual world was to be embraced. And what Paul is saying is, you guys don't understand us like you think you do. The Corinthians consider themselves a spiritual people, and Paul has drawn upon that understanding to demonstrate the certainty of the resurrection and the certainty of a spiritual body that all believers, Will will inherit once the last day comes. Now, Paul is going to give an example in the final few verses of our passage here today. So back up into where we initially were in verses 21 and 22, Paul argued that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He returns to that analogy and he uses scripture to support his contention here in verse 44 that believers will be raised with a spiritual body. And so Paul is going to go back and revisit the example of Adam and Christ Christ. He does so by quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Here's what he says in verse 45. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul, and he adds to Genesis 2 7, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So, drawing upon the Adam-Christ archetype, the first man, Adam, represents the earthly, natural man. The last Adam, Christ, represents the spiritual man. Or the life-giving spirit. Now this gets a little bit difficult to follow, so you have to listen very well here. Paul would go on to tell the Romans in Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's sin, disobedience, excuse me, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now Paul is making a distinction here between Adam the earthly, the One who has given us death, Christ the spiritual, Jesus, who is giving us eternal life in this new resurrected body. So through Adam, we've inherited our natural bodies. Through Christ, we will inherit spiritual bodies in the resurrection. So his emphasis here is on chronological order, that which comes first. And he says natural before spiritual. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So Adam, the natural man, came before Jesus, the spiritual God-man. Now, the difference between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies parallels the difference between Adam's bodily existence and Christ's resurrected body, which distinguishes the difference between a natural and a spiritual body. That's a lot to tackle, isn't it? Let me say that again. The difference between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies parallels the difference between Adam's bodily existence and Christ's resurrected body which distinguishes the difference between a natural and a spiritual body. So Paul now speaks of Adam Christ in terms of a first and second man, and he highlights the distinctives, excuse me, the distinctive origin of each of these. So in verse 47, the first man is from earth, earthy, he is from dust, made from dust. The second man is from heaven. Jesus, the eternal God, who came down from heaven as the God-man originated in heaven. Natural man versus spiritual man. Verse 48, As is the earthy, the natural man, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also those... Who are heavenly. So the first man is from the dust of the earth. The second man is from heaven. And there is a distinct difference between the two. Just as there will be a distinct difference between our earthly bodies and our resurrected bodies. Verse 49 concludes our passage. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, we were all born into this world like Adam, taking upon the appearance of a human, the type, flesh and bones, organs, all that good stuff. One day, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, the spiritual, the Christ who came from heaven. Our resurrected body will be a spiritual body, just like Christ's was a spiritual body after his resurrection. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was, for the most part, bound by time and space. Right? He walked, he talked, he ate, he slept, he got tired. He did all the ordinary things that every human does. But in his resurrected state, he was no longer bound by space and time. He walked through closed doors. He appeared out of nowhere. He disappeared at the, at the twinkling of an eye. He was no longer bound By time and space, yet he also sat and ate and drank and he talked with the disciples. There is a very distinct difference between Christ's earthly body and Christ's resurrected body. There is a distinct difference between the earthly body that originates in Adam and our spiritual bodies that originate in Christ that we will inhabit once our bodies are resurrected on the last day. We can't imagine or know with precision exactly what this is going to be like, but it is a certain reality for those who have been saved by Christ. We will be raised with a resurrected body, perfectly suited to serve and please God. Now here's where I think this really gets interesting is this. God didn't have to do that. But He did. God didn't have to give us Himself in Christ, but He did. God didn't have to give us the confident hope of an eternity and a spiritual body that is unlike anything else we could ever hope to imagine, but He did. And He did all of that The moment you said yes to Christ as your Lord and Savior, you had no idea what God did for you on that day. Did you? No idea. But that's exactly what God did. Would you pray with me please?